On the evening of November 24th, 1572, with family and friends at his bedside, John Knox laid down his spiritual claymore and joyfully entered his eternal rest. He crossed into a better country than the one that he had cherished here on earth. The struggle was over for this battle-worn preacher, for the glory of Christ and for the reformation of Scotland. He had fought the good fight. He had finished the race. He had kept the faith. The Scottish reformer may have lived longer than his 58 years or so if it wasn't for the weighty troubles that afflicted him in his final two years of life. Troubles such as the assassination of his dear friend James Stewart, regent of Scotland in 1570, put to death, murdered by the Queen's men. Or, the weighing heavily on Knox was the deeply held conviction that the Roman Catholic Church's grand design was to totally extinguish the Protestant Church in Scotland and England and on the continent. The news of the St. Bartholomew's Massacre in Paris, which took place three months before Knox's death, would have confirmed his fears. There are estimates that up to 30,000 French Huguenots were slaughtered under the direction of the Roman Catholic de' Medici family. Knox had connections and friendships with many of these who were put to death on that terrible day. He wondered if the same thing would happen in Scotland through the treasonous strategies of Queen Mary. Knox himself was also under the constant threat of death. Like a trooper on the front lines of battle, he knew every day could be his last. And as with Luther and Calvin, it was quite extraordinary that this man died peacefully in his home, in his bed. And perhaps most wearying upon Knox was how deeply he felt the burden of the fledgling Scottish Kirk with political intrigues, popish plots, ecclesiastical compromise. Knox wondered if the reformed Scottish church would continue or be swiftly crushed as it was in France. Whether these deep burdens sent Knox to an early grave, we may never know. What we can be sure of, however, is that our sovereign God, in his mysterious providence, raised up this flawed, courageous, and godly Scotsman to make a profound impact on his own and on future generations and on the life of this man that's standing before you right now. Even so, some might be wondering, why take time at the Twin Lakes Fellowship to consider a man like John Knox? Isn't there something else we should be thinking about? Wouldn't something else be more helpful to us in our ministries? Perhaps. But I do believe uh, that this life, uh, if understood, it can have a great impact on us. There are at least four reasons why studying the life and ministry of uh, Knox is good for our own day, beneficial for our own ministries. First of all, Knox was a man of undaunted courage. And if ever we needed courageous preachers and brave pastors, it is now. Amen? If ever we need courageous and brave pastors like John Knox, it is now. Through the life of Knox, we receive a fresh call to courageous preaching, courageous pastoring, 
and courageous Christian living. When the Earl of Morton, the regent, regent for James VI, visited Knox's grave, he reported to have said, quote, There lies one who in his life never feared the face of man. Brothers, in our current ecclesiastical climate of doctrinal compromise, we don't need more effeminate and weak-kneed men who will negotiate the truth, but more courageous and godly men who will lay down their lives for the truth. Secondly, Knox was a man of great vision for the salvation of souls and the reformation of the church. And if ever the Reformed Church needed ministers with great vision, it is now. Brothers, sometimes we don't ask much of God or attempt much for Him. If we are not careful, we can get comfortable and spiritually dull laboring in our local vineyard and being satisfied with a dearth of zeal to make new disciples, to plant new churches, to expand into new fields of ministry. We can get to a place where our prayers are so small And our outlook so myopic that sometimes it seems we don't need God to keep our ministries going. But not John Knox. He prayed for things that were utterly impossible apart from the hand of Almighty God at work. Like when he prayed that epic prayer for his beloved nation in the bowels of that French slave ship. Give me Scotland or I die. And when he labored tirelessly for true reformation in Scotland and in England and upon the continent, Knox prayed big prayers. And he fought big battles for the sake of the gospel and the church. My prayer is that a consideration of his life and ministry will encourage us in some measure to do the same. Let us have big vision. We'll think more about this in a few minutes. The third reason we're turning to the life of Knox today is because John Knox was a man Devoted to godly piety. And if ever we needed ministers who are devoted to godly piety, it is now. Brothers, the winds of antinomianism are picking up force in the evangelical and reformed church in America. The spiritual disciplines are painted as legalism, and personal holiness is viewed as undermining the gospel. God's Word calls every Christian, and especially pastors, to abide in Christ and to grow in sanctification. In fact, Paul exhorts ministers in 1 Timothy 4 to train yourselves for godliness and to, quote, set believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Why would we want to to gospel that away? It is a fruit of the gospel. It doesn't undermine the gospel. And pastors need to remember that they are Christians first and then pastors. That our public ministry is meant to flow from sincere faith and personal piety. John Knox was this kind of a man. If you know anything about him, he was a man of personal piety, a man of devotion to the Lord, a man of prayer, a man of the word. Before he walked with kings, queens, and regents in their royal courts, he walked with God. Fourthly, John Knox was a man fiercely loyal to his friends and to his family. Contrary to the portrait painted by his detractors, the sometimes overzealous and intemperate reformer was profoundly loving and affectionate 
with his family and friends. Professor Jane Dawson's biography on Knox underscores this. As it opens with this beautiful scene from Geneva, Switzerland on May 23rd, 1557, when Knox joyfully brought his firstborn son, Nathaniel Knox, to be baptized by his dear, lifelong friend and fellow minister, Christopher, Christopher Goodman, as this uh, congregation of English refugees looked on. These Protestant exiles were a long way from the Marian persecutions in England, and they were grateful for this wonderful display of God's covenant love. Knox deeply loved his wife, his children, his family, his friends, and his congregations. The newly discovered Goodman letters reveal Knox's long-standing and loyal friendship with his fellow pastor and reformer. And Knox in his life, reminds us of the importance of godly friendships among fellow ministers, a subject to which we will turn to a little bit later. And what a joy it is to talk about this subject in the midst of this room, where there are so many friends in ministry. For two years, my wife and I lived in Edinburgh. We have Prince and Prince of Edinburgh in our home, and maps of Scotland up in my study, and uh, it has always been near and dear to our hearts. We uh, walked past the High Kirk on High Street uh, hundreds of times when living there, the place where Knox trumpeted the gospel uh, from 1560 to 1572. We visited his final home on the Royal Mile and frequented the Hollywood Palace where he had confrontations with royalty. A larger than life-size statue of the Scottish reformer stands in the quadrangle of New College just outside of the library. And more than once, and I think some of you have had the same experience in this room, more than once, I looked up at this imposing figure and felt like he was watching me and challenging me as he held his Bible in one hand and had his hand up with the other, challenging me to preach the word and to not fear man, but to fear God. This lecture is meant not only to teach us about an important Reformation figure from history, but also to challenge us in our own lives and ministries. Church history will do this to us if we let it. If we would turn off the sitcoms and and pick up Dalmore on Whitfield. Pick up some of the great biographies and see how they challenge us to live lives differently than so many pastors are living today. Knox's life can be broken up into four main periods. Four main periods. We have his early life, which included his conversion, his call to ministry from 1514 to 1547. We have his ministry in England from 1549 to 1553. His exile on the continent from 1554 to 1558. And finally, the Reformation in Scotland from 1559 to 1572. So really those four main parts of his life we'll look at this afternoon. First of all, his early life. John Knox was born in the ancient burg of Haddington, a town with medieval origins about 20 miles east of Edinburgh. Though no record of his baptism exists, Knox would have received the sign of the covenant at the formidable St. Mary's Parish Church, which was affectionately called the Lamp of the Lothians. Of course, Knox was baptized a Catholic, and no one in early 16th century Scotland would have ever imagined 
that a major rift in the mother church would take place through this Augustinian monk in Germany in just three years' time. We don't know much about Knox's family, but what we do know comes from small snippets in his writings. His parents were likely humble merchants and tenants of the Earl of, Earls of Bothwell near the beautiful banks of the River Tyne. Knox likely had several brothers and sisters, but we only know of one for sure, an older brother named William. And since his older brother would inherit uh, the family business, uh, why then Knox would be sent forth uh, on a road to a career in the church. Young Knox would have grown up hearing dramatic tales of the battles between his homeland and their southern neighbor, England. Tradition has it that Knox's grandfather and his father were killed in the epic Battle of Flodden in 1513 as they fought under the Scottish standards of Northumberland. The battle where King James IV died on the battlefield. It's no wonder that Knox possessed a fighting spirit and a deep love for his native Caledonia. Knox probably went to school at the parish church, St. Mary's, and there he would have become familiar with all of the rites and ceremonies of the medieval tradition. After receiving a solid education at St. Mary's, Knox went off to study sometime in the early 1530s at the University of St. Andrews under the tutelage of the notable famous scholar John Major. Major had just returned from a long and illustrious career in Paris, at the University of Paris, and Knox felt very privileged to study under him. After finishing there at St. Andrews, Knox was ordained in Edinburgh by the Bishop of Dunblane as a deacon and then as a priest at age 25. For the next seven years, he made a good living as a notary apostolic and a tutor. What is this notary apostolic? Well, it's a kind of country lawyer. One writer describes it this way, quote, Knox had become one cog in the large organization that was the late medieval Scottish church. He had been brought within its embrace at baptism, and by entering its career structure, he had been actively sustained by the church through schooling and university, then trained for his legal position and ordained, end quote. But Knox's comfortable life as a country lawyer would soon end. Like young David, who was called out of the fields to serve a much larger purpose, John Knox would soon be called out of his happy life in Haddington to fight and to suffer in an epic battle for Reformation in Scotland and beyond. As with many 16th century reformers, the details of Knox's conversion are a bit fuzzy. While working as a notary and a tutor, Knox must have been exposed to the gospel in some way, perhaps through the preaching of a couple of former Dominican friars. Perhaps it was through the writings of Luther that were being read all over Europe uh, at the time. Uh, Maybe uh, it was from his own personal study of Scripture, which probably was the case. On his deathbed, uh, the Reformer referred to John chapter 17 as the place where he cast his first anchor and asked that it would be read to him by his wife. Perhaps he focused in on those comforting words from John chapter 17 and verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Or perhaps the final verse of that marvelous high priestly prayer, where Jesus prayed, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. It was around 1543 that Knox probably was converted 
For it was, it was three to four years later, at age 32, that he became a committed disciple of the fiery Protestant evangelist preacher George Wishart. Before the fiery Wishart returned to Scotland in 1543, he was in exile, preaching in, in Switzerland and Germany and England. His Protestant theology was strongly shaped by the Swiss Reformation, even translating into Scots the text of the first Helvetic Confession. One modern biography writes that, quote, Wishart wrapped his Swiss Reformed theology in a cloak of recognizable colors that looked both familiar and comforting to his hearers. His preaching was unswerving, but accessible. Upon his return to Scotland, he was seen as a threat by the Roman Catholic Church, and he was admonished not to preach. Of course, Wishart refused. And with the good news of the gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, burning in his chest, he traveled the Scottish countryside, boldly preaching the gospel, boldly preaching the Reformed faith. Knox heard Wishart preach in Leith on December the 13th, 1545. And he was deeply impacted. So much so that for the following five weeks, Knox traveled with him and became a part of his security team. Knox uh, followed Wishart carrying two swords. A spiritual sword, a Bible, and a physical sword, a Scottish one, a claymore, a two-handed sword that would have come probably up to his chin. Wishart was a reformer and a religious fugitive. Knox not only wanted to learn from him, but to defend him. And during these short five weeks, Wishart would have have a massively formative effect on Knox's future ministry. One historian comments that Wishart was intent upon handing on to the Scottish evangelical movement the radical vision of Reformed theology that demanded a complete rejection of the Catholic Church and a stress upon the primacy of Scripture. He gave Knox and the other evangelicals a new ecclesiology, complete with a new view of the ministry of preaching, a new understanding of the sacraments, and new ways of worship. Wishart had an uncompromising vision for the Church of Scotland, and this vision of utter reform, according to Scripture, was fully embraced by his young protege. Knox would never be the same and would always remember his time with Wishart. Now, brothers, I want to hit the pause button here for a moment and consider the impact that faithful preaching and faithful mentoring can have on young brothers in the Lord. As ministers, we can easily get distracted from the main task of ministry. Our sermon preparation gets our junk time. Our prayer lives with We become less intentional about spending time with the flock during the week and seriously investing in the lives of others outside of our pulpit ministries. We begin passing off teaching responsibilities to the less qualified rather than doing it ourselves. Brothers, over the past three years in Charleston, I have been reminded how how formative a serious means of grace ministry, along with spending time with the flock, can be on disciples, on young believers. In the busyness of ministry, whether in a large congregation or a small one, let us not lose sight 
of the basics of faithful means of grace ministry and loving, caring, compassionate mentoring. We need to spend time with our people. I believe this is something I lost towards the end of my previous ministry in the Atlanta area. And I believe uh, through being forced into it, really, not because of anything, any, any uh, intelligence or conviction of my own, but because of being forced into it as a church planter, to gather, to spend time with people. It has reinvigorated this idea. And I thought of it as I thought of Wishart and Knox. Perhaps, perhaps, brothers, you will be a Wishart to a future Knox. Isn't it all of our prayer that someone would come under our wing and would do volumes more than we ever did for the Lord? Let us not become too busy to do so. Let us not underestimate the impact of faithful preaching and godly mentoring. Who are you mentoring right now? Under Wishart's discipleship, Knox confirmed his allegiance to the Protestant cause. He viewed himself as joining the army of the Lord, and entering a great battle. Knox often employed a militaristic language to describe the fight for Reformation, even once referring to the Catholic Mass as more of a threat than if 10,000 enemy soldiers had landed on Scottish soil. But Knox's time with his godly mentor would not last. Wishart, only after five weeks of being with him, Wishart was arrested by the authorities and handed over to the infamous Cardinal Beaton of St. Andrews, a fierce opponent of Protestant Reformation, and the one Knox described in his history that he wrote in, in 1558 as, quote, that bloody wolf, the Cardinal. Knox wanted to stay near Wishart, and others did as well, to help him in some way. They didn't know what to do, but Wishart famously said to his young Timothy and others, Nine, return to your bairns, and God bless you. One is sufficient for sacrifice. After a brief trial, Wishart was condemned and executed, martyred for the cause of Christ. Wishart died as he lived, trusting in his heavenly Father and testifying to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. The martyrdom of Knox's mentor, hero, and friend had an indelible mark upon his soul the rest of his life. It served in many ways to fuel his zeal for reformation. And when we think of Knox, and we think of his zeal, we think of his ardor, we think of his passion, sometimes even stepping over the line a bit, we, we can understand him better when we think of him. <clears throat> As he meditates his entire life upon the execution of his mentor for the cause of Christ. Oh, what boldness it must have given him. It also, this also, this, this martyrdom served to raise tensions between the growing Protestant faction and the established church. Two months after Cardinal Beaton of St. Andrews had condemned Wisher to death, 18 men with a mixture of motives, some of them religious, some of them political, there were land disputes, all kinds of stuff going on here, but they were mad, we know that. Eighteen of them, they hatched a plan to break into the castle of St. Andrews and take revenge on Beaton, and that's what they did. The plan worked, and on the morning of May 29th, 1546, this, this vengeful band stormed the cardinal's bedroom and brutally stabbed him to death. 
In their minds, they were instruments carrying out the judgment of God against this wicked man. After murdering Beaton, the men successfully took over the castle at St. Andrews, setting the stage for Knox and his call to the ministry. The castle became a safe haven then for fiery Protestants. Many were concerned that they would receive the same treatment as wishers, and so they took refuge in what was a kind of Protestant fortress. Knox entered the castle during Easter of 1547, along with three of his students. He continued his teaching duties in, in, in Latin grammar, the classics, and a Lectio Continua series on the Gospel of John. He taught his students in the first floor chapel on the eastern side of the castle, not far from where his mentor, George Wishart, was executed. Surely this must have added zeal to his instruction. As others set in on his lessons, they recognized his extraordinary gifts, and soon he was being asked to be the castle preacher. And he responded by saying, quote, He would not run where God had not called him. But during a public gathering, during a public gathering, one of the men spoke directly to Knox in a William Farrell to Calvin kind of way. And he said this, In the name of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, and in the name of those that presently calls you by my mouth, I charge you, That ye refuse not this holy vocation, but that as ye tender the glory of God, the increase of Christ his kingdom, the edification of your brethren, and the comfort of me, whom ye understand well enough to be oppressed by the multitude of labors, that ye take upon you the public office and charge of preaching, even as ye look to avoid God's heavy displeasure, and desire that he shall multiply his graces with you. Hard to refuse that. One writer states, quote, It was a comprehensive piece of emotional and religious blackmail. <laughs> Combining the voices of God, of the congregation, and of himself to create a cacophony of pressure upon Knox. Well, in a moment of reform drama, Knox bursts out into tears and runs out of the room and is just overwhelmed. And for many days, Knox agonized over this calling. It wasn't easy. Looking out of the castle window to see where his his mentor was, was executed, he knew that this calling meant a calling to die. Not a cushy country parish, but a call as a pilgrim preacher to take up his cross and die for the sake of the gospel. Finally, After many days, Knox embraced the call, believing that God wanted him to be a steward and defender of the true gospel and to feed the flock for which his beloved Savior had shed his own blood. He declared, quote, I dare not cast off that burden that God hath laid upon me to preach. Knox later referred to those early days of preaching at St. Andrews as when God had, quote, opened my mouth to his glory. It's a wonderful way to think of preaching. He opens our mouth to his glory. I remember being at a church on vacation. We all have those, we all have those on, in church on vacation stories, right? We tell. And we were 
in church on vacation, and the pastor, the entire sermon, uh, told stories, and most of them were about himself. And after the service was over, my, my daughter, who likes to wind me up because she knows what I'm thinking, she says, my face. And she said, Dad, what did you think about the sermon? I said, well, honey, you tell me what you think first, and be nice. Tell, tell, me, tell me what you think. And she said, and actually, um, this is when I was working at, at Grace still, and uh, working with uh, Cliff Daniel, my dear friend. And she said, well, Daddy, when you and Pastor Cliff preach, you talk a lot about God and Jesus. But when, she was about five years old at the time. But when the pastor this morning talked, he just talked about himself. Pretty much sums it up. <laughs> well done. This is the way we ought to think about preaching, brothers. He opens our mouth to his glory. But everything was about to drastically change for this newly ordained, zealous preacher. A fleet of French ships sailed into the harbor of St. Andrews in July of 1547 to rid Catholic Scotland of these heretical Protestants in the fortified castle. After heavy bombardment, the Scots surrendered. An English army arrived six weeks later, but it was too late. The castle had been taken, and the prisoners, Knox included, were shipped to France on August 7th. It would be nearly 12 years before Knox would return to his native land uh, for good, to live. He was there from time to time. Sailing from the North Sea to the mouth of the Seine River, the prisoners were taken to France with the hope of fair treatment. Instead, they were assigned that which was considered to be one small notch above execution. Knox and the others were sentenced to be galley slaves on a French ship called the Nostradam. To be a galley slave meant that you would be chained with leg irons to a rowing bench below decks. There would be 50 oarsmen down there at a time, with four to six men on each oar that measured about 50 feet long. It was a terrible existence. And Knox's future health, many believe, was damaged by this time, this grueling 19 months as a galley slave. But through it all, Knox never lost his passion for Christ and for his truth and for reformation. By God's grace, his faith did not waver, and he maintained a burning zeal for the gospel. The same went for many who were with him. In fact, Knox tells a wonderful little story about one Saturday evening in the galleys when several Catholic men began to sing the Salve Regina, a song for the Virgin Mary. When the singing began, Knox and his comrades, first of all, refused to remove their caps. And as the singing went on, they all began to pull the caps down over their ears so as not to hear it so as not to hear this blasphemous anthem. To take things further, a painted image of the Virgin was being passed around so that each crew member might kiss it and show reverence to Mary. One of them, probably Knox himself, told the officer he didn't want to touch the accursed idol, much less kiss it. The officer then forced the image into Knox's hands, after which Knox promptly cast it out the window and into the sea. <laughs> then, with a tinge of humor, 
Knox said, let our lady now save herself. <laughs> she is light enough, let her learn to swim. Over the 19 months that Knox was a galley slave, the ships would travel in between France and the shores of his homeland. On one of these occasions, when Knox was very sick and the shadow of death was upon him, one of his comrades lifted him up, lifted up his weak body so he could see the silhouette of the St. Andrew's skyline. And when asked if he recognized it, he said this, quote, Yes, I know it well. For I see the steeple of that place where God first in public opened my mouth to his glory. And I am fully persuaded how weak that I ever now appear that I shall not depart this life till that my tongue shall glorify his godly name in the same place. And it was on another occasion that he cried out to God those memorable words, Give me Scotland or I die. My brothers, I want us to pause here and reflect for a moment upon Knox's difficult circumstances and how he responds to them and what we might learn from his example. Think about what has happened to Knox at this point. This is a real man. It's not some, some fairy tale, some hagiography. This is, this, this is a real man. This happened. He is converted, but instead of having his best life now after conversion... <laughs> His beloved mentor, George Wisher, is arrested and martyred by the Catholic authorities. And he takes refuge in the St. Andrew's Castle. But not long after that, he receives a call to the gospel ministry and is, and then, is then taken captive by the French and assigned as a galley slave for 19 months. Now, I don't know what you're going through in your church right now. And in some respects, it could be pretty bad, but I would venture to say it's not this bad. How does Knox respond? Does he give up? Does he, does he want to die? Does he want to throw himself out into the sea? By the grace of God, he not only maintains a strong faith and zeal for right doctrine, but he also maintains and fosters a big vision for reformation in Scotland. Surely here we see a marvelous example of one who proves the scriptural promise in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10 that, quote, God's grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in what? In weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In the lowest of circumstances, circumstances viewed by many as that which would likely lead to death, Knox abides in Christ. And he even encouraged those around him and said that he pastored his fellow oarsmen. He maintains a big, humanly impossible vision for Scotland. In these dark days, he's not filled with self-pity. He's filled with Christ and a passion for the reformation of his land. Brothers, when we're going through difficult times, let us not be filled with self-pity. Because when we are, we're filled with self. We're not filled with Christ. It is when... It is when... We are weak, that he is strong. 
Knox reminds us that no matter what may be going on in our lives, no matter what kind of trials we may be experiencing, we must abide in Christ. We must draw grace and strength from Him. We must maintain a big vision for ministry and discipleship. Our weakness does not extinguish the power of God. It makes us vessels for it. Remember, His power is made perfect in our weakness. It's precisely because God wants to grow you and bless you and use you that He brings difficulties into your lives. I remember in the weeks subsequent to my diagnosis of thyroid cancer two years ago, several people from different places would come to me and say, Pastor John, you're preaching. It's different. So yeah, I, I've just, I've just considered my mortality. I hope it is different. It feels different for me too. Our weakness does not extinguish the power of God. It makes us vessels for it. We yield to the Spirit. Did you notice how big Knox's vision for ministry was? His vision was for the reformation of Scotland. I mean. You know, we would have understood if he said, give me Haddington or I die. Or give me Leaf or I die. I mean, something not quite as grand as the entire nation of Scotland. But no, this young Scottish reformer, he cries out for something so big that only God can do it. It's got me thinking about how often we reformed pastors get comfortable in our ministries with very little vision at all. I alluded to this earlier. Sometimes this lack of vision stems from discouragement in ministry. We get beat down. We allow our circumstances to overwhelm us. We stop praying. Sometimes it stems from a lack of personal piety. I honestly think this is one of the biggest problems in the Reformed community. That we lack vision, we lack vision, we lack vision, we lack zeal for evangelism. We lack a passion to pray because we ourselves are not walking with God. Our hearts grow cold towards the Lord and so we lack vision. Sometimes it comes from simply wanting to stay in our comfort zones. Suddenly, after years of ministry, we find ourselves more enthusiastic about a predictable schedule and our next vacation than the expansion of the church. Well, a brief glance at Knox's life challenges us to pray big prayers, to, to, to be forward-looking in our ministries, to not be stale, stagnant, and comfortable. We Reformed and confessional guys aren't always strong in this area. We have plenty of sanctimonious reasons why we are this way. We've got a long list. We criticize our more progressive brothers for being over-contextualized and culturally accommodating in their approach to missions and outreach without providing a positive example of how it should be done. Shame on us for that. Brothers, for the health and multiplication of healthy, reformed, and confessional churches, we need to think bigger, we need to pray bigger, and we need to seek the Lord with a new passion to carry out the Great Commission. Amen? Amen. 
let's plant more churches in London and Boston. I haven't heard anybody talking about Boston or London a whole lot until today. I'm encouraged by that. Well, through some diplomatic relations between the English and the French, Knox was released to the English in the spring of 1549. By then, the boy king, Edward VI, had been on the throne for two years. Under Edward's reign, England was becoming a more distinctively Protestant and Reformed nation. After spending some time in London, the powers that be assigned Knox to a garrison in Berwick-upon-Tweed in the north of England to be an army chaplain. In God's providence, he was being prepared for the for this rough military town during his nine months in the galleys with 150 men. Knox was a pro at men's ministry. <laughs> From 1551, Knox would continue to visit Berwick, but he made his residence in Newcastle. And the following year, he married Marjorie Bowes, the daughter of a, Protestant, a prominent Scottish, or he betrothed to Marjorie Bowes, the daughter of a prominent Scottish family. The clerical marriage had been legalized Three years before, people were still not used to the idea. One author states that, quote, many would continue to regard such a union with distaste, and names such as priests, whore, and worse were flung at this first generation of ministers' wives. Let's not forget how the wives of these reformers suffered for the sake of the gospel. brought tears to my eyes hearing a testimony of the wives' involvement in the church plan. God, thank you for our wives. In 1551, Knox was invited to preach to King Edward VI at Windsor Castle. His preaching was very well received, and he was later offered prestigious pulpits, one in London and one uh, he was offered the, the uh, bishopric in Rochester. He refused both invitations, believing that his preaching would be restricted in some way if he were to take either of those calls. He wanted to speak freely and forthrightly from God's word, just as he did in response to the Book of Common Prayer when Cranmer wrote it and he preached vehemently against kneeling at the Lord's Supper, teaching that it was idolatrous to do so. Knox preached courageously on the subject and it caused such a stir. The so-called black rubric was added to the prayer book to help guard people from idolatry at the Lord's table. Brothers, don't ever take a call into ministry where you will be restricted from speaking the whole counsel of God. Never do that. And in some places, they will restrict you. Maybe restricting you with time. Son, we'll give you 20 minutes. Don't ask for more. We've got a big music ministry. Don't, don't agree to those terms. Tell him you can't, you can't clear your throat in 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Through this episode with the prayer book, we learned that Knox was a man of deep doctrinal conviction. He viewed bowing at communion as an idolatrous holdover from the Mass and rightly taught that God's people should sit to receive the elements as one would do at a table. The Lord's table is not a buffet. You sit and you receive it from Christ in the hands of the ministers. 
Knox described King Edward VI as that most godly and virtuous king. One wonders how extensive England's Reformation might have been if he had lived a long life. But the Protestant boy king died in 1553, and his wicked half-sister, Mary Tudor, ascended the throne. Mary, of course, during her five-year reign of terror, and in an effort to turn back England to Rome, brought merciless persecution against the Protestants in England. She was nicknamed Bloody Mary for putting to death hundreds of Protestants, burning them at the stake. Knox described her as an open traitoress to the imperial crown of England, and, quote, under an English name, she beareth a Spaniard's heart. She was married to Philip II of Spain. Suddenly, Knox goes from a friend and preacher to the royal court to a fugitive on the run. His, new, his, new, uh, his, his betrothal is now illegal, and he is in moral danger. What is he to do? Friends encouraged Knox to leave the country and to go to the continent. He fled to Chester, England, perhaps to find travel arrangements in a city where he may not have been known. And it was in Chester that the Scottish reformer met his lifelong friend, Christopher Goodman. Christopher Goodman was the former Lady Margaret Professor of Divinity at Oxford University who lost his position at Oxford when Mary Tudor ascended the throne. Knox's friendship with Goodman was one of those jewels that I learned about while preparing for this lecture. Professor Jane Dawson at the University of Edinburgh wrote her new biography in part to to bring out these new letters that she had discovered between Knox and Goodman, showing their wonderful bond of friendship they had for close to 20 years until Knox's death. The two shared a deep and loyal friendship and partnered in ministry for 10 years in Geneva and in Scotland. They worked together as co-pastors. For the final seven years of Knox's life, the two were separated by God's providence, but they were always trying to figure out how they could work together again. In 1568, when Knox finally accepted that they would not be working together again, he wrote that, quote, I will the more patiently bear his absence, weaning myself from all comfort that I looked to have received by his presence and familiarity. Isn't there a comfort in the presence of good friends, that, that familiarity of knowing that you are loved Unconditionally. Not long before his death, Knox wrote to his faithful friend, quote, The name of God be praised, who of his mercy hath left me so great comfort of you in this life. Even John Calvin was aware of this abiding friendship of Knox and Goodman. In 1561, Calvin wrote to Goodman and instructed him to stay in Scotland to assist with the Reformation, but also to bring comfort to John Knox, who had recently lost his wife and was grieving greatly. You can learn more about this warm Christian friendship from Dawson's biography. But what struck me while reading about this friendship was how important these kinds of friendships are for Christian ministers. This is a thought I, I, I've had for a couple of years, even before I started digging into Knox's life. It was, this has been something I've been thinking a lot about. Christian friendship. Godly and loyal friendships are hard to find. And when you do find them, they need to be cultivated and nurtured. Or they won't last. 
good friendships between ministers of the gospel are vital for encouragement and for perseverance. Some in this room have been loyal friends to me for over 15 years. We've walked through a large chunk of life together as Christian ministers, as friends. You've encouraged me, you've prayed for me, you've checked on me, you've loved me enough to question, correct, and even rebuke me. And I've sought to do the same for you. The brother's loving rebuke and correction is a part of true friendship. Oscar Wilde once wrote that, quote, true friends stab you in the front. <laughs> of course, the Proverbs speak to this. Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. I've noticed a pattern over the last decade that friends of mine and acquaintances of mine who have fallen into sin, who have fallen into infidelity in their marriages, one common denominator is that they began to isolate themselves. No longer did they have prayer partners. No longer were they having long conversations with friends on the phone about their ministries. No longer did they give people access into their heart. No longer were people asking them, how is your soul, brother? Friendships are meant to be a place of safety for us. We are more susceptible to the attacks of the devil without these kinds of friendships. Do not overestimate the spiritual benefits blessings of deep and abiding friendships. Do not underestimate them, rather. Do not underestimate the spiritual benefits and blessings of deep and abiding friendships with fellow ministers and elders. And one deep, true, sincere friendship with a fellow minister and elder, where you can be totally honest with one another, is worth more than a thousand superficial, back-slapping GA acquaintances. And I don't care how many books you write or how many conferences you speak at or how well-known you are. You need true friends. Friends don't tell you when you're being arrogant. Martin Luther wrote of friendships that, quote, throughout life, a faithful friend is a very great blessing and a very precious treasure. This is true not only in view of the ordinary dangerous difficulties in which he can offer help and consolation, but also in view of spiritual temptations. For even though your heart is thoroughly confirmed by the Holy Spirit, there is nonetheless a great advantage in having a friend with whom you can talk about religion and from whom you may hear words of comfort. Oh, what comfort and joy and safety there is in the familiarity of a good and loyal friend. Perhaps you have a friend like this that you've perhaps not spoken to in a while. Call him up. Talk to him. Tell him you love him. Be more regular in your interaction. Thank God for good friendships. Let us make sure that we are cultivating these friendships that we have. For like a garden, it will not tend itself. Isolation is dangerous and faithful friendships with fellow ministers are invaluable. So Knox fled to the continent during the Marian exile after spending a brief time in Dieppe, a coastal port town in the north of France. 
Knox traveled to Geneva and met Calvin. It was a brief initial meeting. After two months, uh, uh, Calvin sent him to Frankfurt. I don't know if that conversation didn't go very well, but uh, uh, Calvin sent Knox up to Frankfurt uh, to pastor an English congregation alongside his friend, Christopher Goodman. That pastorate didn't last, however, due to heavy disputes on the liturgy. Once again, Knox wouldn't budge on the regulative principle of worship, and Goodman uh, followed suit. He and Goodman both returned to Geneva after a year and later co-pastored an English refugee congregation in Geneva. Knox returned to Britain for several months during this period to marry his betrothed and to collect her and, her, and, and her mother, his mother-in-law to take them back to Geneva. During this visit, however, he went on an unplanned preaching tour of Scotland. During this preaching tour, Knox's heart was rekindled for his native land, but it was not safe. That year, in 1556, the church officially condemned Knox as a heretic. So he moved back to Geneva with his new wife and his mother-in-law and began pastoring the Congregation of Refugees. This period between 1556 and 1558 were some of the happiest and most peaceful years of Knox's life. It was an oasis. Things were peaceful. He got to know Calvin, Beza, Vire, Heinrich Bullinger, and Zurich. His wife was bearing children. He was enjoying ordinary pastoral ministry, and Geneva was, in the words of Knox, the most perfect school of Christ he had ever known. If you want to know that today, just come to Charleston. <laughs> Finally, the storm had died down. Finally, he could breathe. Things were peaceful. He loved ministering with his dear friend, Christopher Goodman. Goodman described this congregation in Geneva as, quote, manful soldiers of Christ who had mustered where Christ's banner is displayed and his standards set up, where the assembly of your brethren is and his word openly preached and sacraments faithfully administered. This was the quintessential ordinary means of grace church. But his homeland still called for him. He always felt conflicted when he was away from Scotland. His big prayers for Scotland continued and his passion for the complete reformation of his native land burned in his heart. 1558 was a big year in Knox's story. First, because he wrote that infamous book entitled The First Trumpet Blast Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women. The First Trumpet Blast Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women. It was a treatise against female monarchs that according to scripture, females are not fit to rule in these high positions. Now before you raise your eyebrows, let me tell you this. If you had lived under the rule of the three Marys, Mary Tudor, Queen of England and arch persecutor of the church, Mary of Guise, French dowager, Queen of Scotland, as well as her daughter, Mary, Queen of Scots, you would likely have given Knox a big amen. You would have had a bad attitude towards women rulers as well. What's interesting about this, however, is that Knox did not want this, I mean, uh, Calvin did not want this published because of what it would do in the future, and it caused a lot of damage. We'll talk about that in a little while. 1558 was a big year also because Mary Tudor, or Bloody Mary, died. 
and her half-sister Elizabeth I rose to the throne. Unfortunately for Knox and for future relations between England and the Swiss, Swiss Reformation, Queen Elizabeth read his book on female monarchs, and she was not pleased. In fact, she never trusted anyone connected to the Genevan Reformation again, and she had a long reign. Imagine if that book was never sent. What kinds of alliances could have been made between Geneva and London? What kind of reform could have taken place in England? The first trumpet blast is one good example, brothers, of the fact that sometimes our views, if not central to the gospel, are better left unpublished for the sake of the wider agenda for reformation. Take this down to a smaller view. Some battles in your church are not worth fighting right now. Fight the big ones, the main ones. Don't spread yourself thin on every little single thing that you want reformed. Take your time. And you'd be surprised at how faithful preaching changes minds on all kinds of things. <coughs> Knox later tried to pacify Elizabeth by saying, uh, Queen Elizabeth, this book was really for Mary the First. But that didn't help. She had made up her mind about Knox in these overzealous Calvinist times. Mary's <coughs> death, however, provided Knox the opportunity to go back home to his native land. And while he loved, while he loved his life in Geneva and in some ways was torn about where he should be, he knew he had to go back. He did not have a martyr's complex, as it were, but he knew he had to go to do battle for the sake of the gospel and his beloved nation. In a letter to a friend, shortly after landing back in Scotland, Knox wrote, Be life, be death, or else be both. I've come back to glorify his holy name. He also asked for prayer that he would shrink not when the battle approaches. One thing you see in Knox was he was not, in some ways he was reckless, in other ways he wasn't at all. He was, he was just courageous. He had fears. He didn't have a martyr's complex. If he did, he would have, he would have stayed around when, when Mary Tudor came to the throne. Calvin and other friends in Geneva not only encouraged Knox to return to his native shores, but also carefully strategized how best to bring thorough ecclesiastical reform to Scotland and its neighbor, south of Hadrian's Wall. Wouldn't it have been great to sit in those meetings, strategizing with Calvin and Knox about how to bring reform to the world? Knox arrived in Scotland a condemned and wanted man, a man despised by the bishops. Tensions were high. Revolutionaries for reform had grown since he was last in Scotland. And it was on May 11th in Perth, in the parish church of St. John, the Scottish Reformation is traditionally thought to have begun. It was on this occasion that Knox preached a thunderous sermon that sparked a kind of iconoclastic riot in Perth that led to the uprising of a revolutionary coalition that called themselves the Lords of the Congregation. These revolutionaries went to war against Queen Regent Mary of Geese and her armies. And one by one, the lords of the congregation took control over Scottish towns. St. Andrews became their eastern headquarters, and Knox found himself in the coming year serving in the fields as an army chaplain for the soldiers against the Queen's men. His dear friend Christopher Goodman served as the first pastor in St. Andrews. Knox sensed that God was in this. 
that he was delivering Scotland from the clutches of Satan, even as God had delivered Israel from Pharaoh centuries before. His preaching in the wet, peaty, thistle-laden battlefields was described this way, quote, The voice of one man is able in one hour to put more life in us than 500 trumpets continually blustering in our ears. His preaching had urgency. Knox's preaching had power and unction. It instilled great courage in the soldiers. Oh, to be there, to hear those sermons. In the summer of 1559, the lords of the congregation retook Perth, gained Stirling, and marched towards Edinburgh. Their negotiations with the captain of the Edinburgh castle didn't initially go well. Eventually, English reinforcements arrived, and Mary of Geese died. And with the assistance from the English, Edinburgh was now in the hands of the Protestants. Of course, you know the story. Knox was called to be the minister at St. Giles, the High Kirk of Edinburgh. This kirk is advantageously situated on High Street between the castle and uh, the royal palace, a mile. It's called the Royal Miles, a mile between the castle and Hollywood Palace. Here was a great opportunity to make Edinburgh the Geneva of the North and help serve in the effort of widespread reformation in Great Britain and Western Europe. In order to reform the Kirk, it was essential that they reform the liturgy, write a new confession, and construct a new form of discipline for the church. Here we learn about the notable committee of the six Johns who were chosen to accomplish this task, since we all know that those bearing the name John have unique theological insight. <laughs> John Knox was a member of this committee of six. They put their heads together and wrote the Scots Confession of 1560 in four days. Now you say, well, that's impressive. Well, it was quickly written, and if you've ever read it, you know it was quickly written. It's easy to see why the Church of Scotland rejoiced when they adopted the Westminster Standards in 1647. <laughs> Written over the course of four years, and not four days. The six Johns presented the Scots Confession to Parliament on August 17, 1560. Scotland was now a Protestant nation. The brief confession has 25 short chapters with Bible references appended. The person and work of Christ are central. A clear definition of the true church is set forth. The confession states that, quote, the word of God truly preached, the sacraments rightly administered, and discipline executed according to the word of God are certain and infallible signs of the true Kirk. Amen to that. Amen to that. And may there be no confusion in the minds of our people about what a true church is. These were amazing times. While there was much work to do, Knox's prayer for the nation of Scotland had been answered. But depression would soon set in. In that same glorious year of 1560, Knox's beloved wife Marjorie died. In the following year, Mary, Queen of Scots, returned to Scotland to rule. On the day of young Mary's arrival, a har, or a low and dense sea mist from the Firth of Forth, had settled upon Edinburgh. How many of you have ever seen a Scottish horror before? Yes. It's depressing. <laughs> it is. We, we, had, we had one settle on us while we were living there uh, that lasted for six weeks. It's like the cloud is right on top of your head. You do not see the sun for weeks. 
Knox expressed that he couldn't see past the length of two boots. And his spiritual vision was clouded with discouragement. He knew that this woman of darkness and impiety would seek to undermine the Reformation at every turn, as well as seek to renew alliances with France and the Pope. She arrived in Leith and spent her first night in Holyrood Palace. An interesting little story is that Knox gathered a bunch of friends and got some ukuleles together and went outside her room and sang the psalms to her. <laughs> to my knowledge, they weren't in precatory psalms. They were psalms to welcome her and to say, hey, we love Christ. We love the church. We want you to know that. And perhaps to get into good graces with her in some way. Knox's edgy private meetings with Mary, Queen of Scots, are a part of Scottish folk tradition. It was an incendiary matchup, however. Knox hated Mary's, quote, hypocrisy under the guise of piety. And that's precisely why over the next ten years, Knox would never get along with the Catholic Queen, who, while taking private masses in her palace, was involved in traitorous political intrigues, immoral sexual relationships, and even murder. She was, as my late father used to say, a real piece of work. <laughs> the Reformation years in Scotland from 1560 to the year of Knox's death were far from peaceful. Political disputes brought Knox in and out of the pulpit at St. Giles two more times. He had a total of three calls to St. Giles within that time of 1559 to 1572. There were constant tensions with Mary, Queen of Scots, family feuds with the Hamiltons, assassinations of important Protestant leaders, and a deep anxiety, as I mentioned earlier, that Scotland would one day apostatize, as England did, under the rule of Mary Tudor. In 1564, Knox remarried a young girl by the name of Margaret Stewart, and this marriage brought him much joy, and they had three girls together. Even so, in the later years of that famous decade in Scottish history, Knox spoke and wrote frequently about being weary of the world. This world is weary of me, he would say, and I am weary of it. Like many people in their mid-fifties during this age, Knox suffered from many physical ailments, migraines, fevers, kidney stones, and in October of 1570, he suffered a minor stroke. In 1572, Knox developed a bad cough that never went away. The great man was dying. It was obvious that a successor to Knox should be chosen, and Knox was able to help to choose him. James Lawson was his name, and he was from the College of Aberdeen. On the 9th of November, Knox preached the installation service for Lawson, St. John's. After the service, he was very weak, and many people came home with him. He would never leave his home again on the high street. He knew that the Lord would soon put an end to his warfare. Committed to personal piety his whole life, Knox would read chapters of the Old and New Testaments every day. But now he could not even do this on his own. And so his secretary, Valentine, and his wife would read to him. His last recorded words to Lawson, his successor at the High Kirk, were, quote, Fight the good fight of faith, and perform the work of the Lord joyfully and resolutely. The Lord from on high bless you, and the whole church of Edinburgh, against whom, as long as they persevere in the word of truth, which they have heard from me, the gates of hell shall not prevail. Two weeks later, the 20th of November, Knox ordered the wooden box that would carry his body. And a long stream of visitors began visiting him in his most recent home, presently known as the John Knox House on High Street. 
His deathbed scene is beautiful. Knox asked his wife Margaret to read to him his favorite text, John 17, where he cast his first anchor as a Christian. 1 Corinthians 15, in that glorious portrait of the resurrection from the dead. And portions of Ephesians, as well as portions of John Calvin's commentary on Ephesians. Asked by one of his friends, Robert Campbell, if he was feeling any pain, he answered, that he did not consider nor feel that to be pain which should put an end to so many distresses and be the beginning of eternal joy. When evening prayers were read not long before his death, he was asked if he had heard them, and he answered, I wish that you may have heard them with the same ears and understood them with the same mind with which I have heard and understood. And just before he died... He was asked to raise his hands head with heavenward as a sign that he was clinging to the promises of God. And with his wife, children, friends, loved ones around him, he lifted up his hands heavenward, sighed, and, quote, without any struggle as one falling asleep, departed this life. Two days later, his body was laid to rest in an unmarked grave on the south side of St. Giles, now under the parking lot. Vast crowds filled the streets in honor of Knox after his death. As did Wishart, Knox died as he lived, courageously, joyfully, gratefully trusting in Christ, the yes and amen of all of God's promises. Knox was, in many ways, a spiritual version of William Wallace, fighting for the spiritual freedom and salvation of his fellow countrymen from the grips of false religion. Though at times fearful, Knox kept going, showing profound courage and bravery in the face of death. And brothers, we need this kind of courage in our day. Courageous preaching, courageous pastoring, courageous living. He, had been he has been caricatured from his day to our very own as a hot-tempered, impatient, fire-breathing, blustering, misogynist, a grumpy Calvinist who couldn't wait to knock out his next victim with his 15-pound Geneva Bible. What we learn after taking a closer look at his life, however, is that while Knox certainly had his flaws, these caricatures are in many ways unfair and exaggerated. He was a man of his time and a courageous and great man. Knox was not a brilliant strategist like Calvin, he wasn't a gifted writer like Bullinger or a first-class theologian like Peter Martyr of Amigli. But God used him to bring the gospel to a nation, and his influence has been deeply felt for 500 years. When we study his life, we recognize that he was primarily a preacher. That was his first calling, and he kept that as the priority, as should we all. Describing his preaching of the word, biographer Jane Dawson writes that, quote, During his ministerial career, Knox swung his spiritual claymore to devastating effect. Sure that he was fighting among the soldiers of Christ against the forces of Antichrist. We need more preaching like this in our day. Preaching which is bold, unapologetic, confrontational, self-forgetful. And that which courageously exposes man's sin and joyfully points them to the crucified, risen, and exalted Lord Jesus Christ. 
This is an arrogant preaching I'm talking about. This is an angry preaching I'm talking about. Get those thoughts out of your head. This is biblical preaching. Apostolic preaching. Oh, may we recover this for our own day. It was said of Knox's preaching that, quote, if a nail needed driving home, the Scot reached for a sledgehammer. If salt were needed to cleanse and scour, then he picked up a shovel. We could say he overdid it, and perhaps sometimes he did, but in his day, was that not what was needed? Desperate days call for high-octane preaching. To the very end, Knox preached with uncommon zeal. A young 50-year-old James Melville attended on Knox's last sermon on Daniel 1-9, through and in his diary, he gives a vivid description of Knox's sermon. Melville wrote, quote, in the opening up of the text, after he had been lifted up into the pulpit, because he was so weak, he was moderate, the space of half an hour. But when he entered to application, he made me to shudder and tremble that I could not hold a pen to write. Melville then wrote that as Knox's sermon progressed, he became more animated, more passionate. He shared in his diary that Knox, quote, was so active and vigorous that he was like to ding that pulpit in blads and to fly out of it. To break it into pieces. How many of you have seen that famous portrait of Knox leaning over the pulpit and pointing? And it looks like he's flying out of the pulpit. His, his, he has his gown kind of going like this. Like there's air on it. Martin, Martin Lloyd-Jones, at a commemorative lecture given at Usher Hall in Edinburgh in 1960, said that John Knox preached with the fire of God in his bones and in his belly. He preached with fire and power, like the prophets and apostles before him. He preached alarming sermons, convicting sermons, humbling sermons, uh, and the face of Scotland was changed. How we need to recover preaching like this in our day. Preaching without timidity, but with power, love, self-discipline, and courage. Not shrinking back from preaching the whole counsel of God. There's too much preaching in our day that lacks teeth. Little confrontation, little challenge, little passion. We need to feel inside, in our stomachs, in our hearts, what we are preaching. Feeling our own sin and our own need for Christ as we proclaim the riches of Christ week after week. John Knox is a towering figure in Reformation history. Some have referred to him as the greatest Scotsman. And his likeness is part of a great Reformation wall. It was built in 1909 in Geneva. And he is there alongside Calvin, Beza, and Pharrell. As we are commanded to consider the great cloud of witnesses throughout church history from Hebrews 12, let us consider Knox. Let us consider Knox, brothers. A man who was saved by grace. A man who was called to gospel ministry and who served faithfully with godly courage, sincere piety, loyal friendship, holy zeal, and a pastor's heart. He finished the race, he stayed the course, and he crossed the the finish line by the grace of God. And so may we look to him and may we finish the race. May we stay the course, may we persevere and endure. Whatever's going on in your ministries, keep going to the end. Be sure Knox had his weaknesses. Sometimes his greatest strengths manifested themselves as his greatest weaknesses. Sometimes that mighty courage went a little overboard, as they sometimes do in us all. But 
Knox was a man of God and a soldier for Christ who fought to the very end. Let us learn from him, brothers. Let us, like Knox, act like men as we serve our king on the battlefield of our own day. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for John Knox. We thank you that he is a part of that great cloud of witnesses that witnessed the glory of Christ and the truth of the gospel and whose lives call us to a life of courageous faith and ministry. Oh, Lord, help us apply many of these biblical principles and truths to our lives as we consider his life. And Lord, we thank you for Christ. Thank you for Christ, because at a thousand points we fail to measure up to your standard. We thank you for his blood, for his imputed righteousness, for justification, for adoption, and for sanctification and one day glorification. We put all of our hope and our trust in him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.